0: The statements made in this podcast are meant to be taken strictly as opinion and not as statements of fact or evidence in the cases discussed. This episode of Scarlet contains detailed descriptions of sexual assault and desecration of human bodies. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Here with your host Brittany Sherman and Sonia Maisa Leone to uh, to share our thoughts about recent and historical events involving true crime. It's a weird passion side project for us. We um, are passionate about true crime, in particular um, murder. <laughs> <laughs> NBD. Uh, yes, yes. Why is
0: why is that in really the zeitgeist right now? I feel like a lot of people all of a sudden are super excited about it.
1: I think that it just comes with the ability to get information and to get excited about that information. I, um, I mean, for me, the one reason that I started really getting into it is cause I was seemed surrounded by it when I was listening to podcasts. And then I started watching things online and you could get to everything. I mean, you could pretty much find every video <laughs> ever done on YouTube. So it just, I think it was about access
0: do you feel like you just kind of got into this or has this been an interest of yours
1: for a while? Oh, I've been a, a fan for many, many years.
0: A murder fan. Yeah.
1: I, um, when I was 21 or 22, my boyfriend at the time wrote a one man show uh-huh. about Charles Manson <laughs> and, okay. um, inspired by a really great one man show, uh, called true about Truman Capote. And it, and it was, I think Robert Morse was the actor. He won many Tony awards. It was amazing. And so, Having similar to video and and access again, you know, you had this moment with this person who was essentially playing Truman Capote, and in the even though he was on stage and it was a play event, it felt so intimate, and you really seemed to understand the true true side of Truman Capote. Haha, <laughs> um, and so that being expressed as Charles Manson, we thought was really interesting. So he wrote a great one man play about it, and he actually sent it to Robert Blake. <laughs> Um, yeah. because at the time, you know, Robert Blake was a really good actor and he had done in cold blood, if I'm not mistaken, right. Is that what he did in cold he blood? He might have. I um, don't remember. Yeah. And he was one of the serial killers in that, if I'm not mistaken. And he, um, you know, he was just a person who would be really interesting to play Charles Manson. He had That's a very R- similar life. Well, this was well before he went on. Yeah, cuckoo. I know. Or maybe he was cuckoo, but you know, it just wasn't out there I mean, was at the time. What, right. Like Beretta, right. Or whatever it was. And and he was really great in that To me, Robert Blake is just Robert Blake, the psycho killer. That's such a bummer. Yeah, I know. But that's kind of what he is. Yes. So that's me in my true crime life. So after our last podcast, I started thinking about the same thing, about how did I really get into it? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking back to when I was a kid, every Friday night was TGIF on ABC. (laughs) And after TGIF was 2020. And I got to watch TGIF and my mom got to watch 2020.
0: Inevitably, it was always pretty much the same story. A murder, a crime story, something about, uh, usually I feel like it was like a husband killed his wife, or there was a mistress, or it was the same story all the time. And then Sunday nights were Dateline. So we would watch, my dad and I would watch football throughout the day, and then my mom would get to watch (laughs) Dateline at night. And it was more of the exact same type of story. It was all murder, rehash, pretty much the same thing. So I was just thinking back. I think that's
1: kind of where my fascination may have started with it at the time I didn't really like it but now
0: i've grown to appreciate it another big show for me <clears> growing <throat> up which i was totally freaked out by but i can appreciate it more now but his voice still creeps me out
1: unsolved mysteries with robert stack yeah, i love him that, his voice is so creepy
0: <laughs> but what is it is he an airplane he's in something else where he plays something that's totally out of the unsolved mysteries character and at the time when i saw it it totally threw me for a loop. I, I only was knew him as Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think it's Airplane, where he's
1: he's just like a regular funny guy, and I think mm-hmm. that's really more of his natural personality. Probably. I mean, I think Leslie Nielsen was the same. You know, yeah, that's true. You know, he was a very serious actor, and then Airplane comes along, and he—that's you know—he was reborn as as that character. I personally love Leslie Nielsen in Creepshow. Well, you raise up a really good point about Leslie Nielsen? I also only knew him from airplane, from the
0: Mega Gun movies. I didn't know him as a serious actor until later in life because I only knew him as Leslie Nielsen from that older age period in that genre. On you're right, he's got this
1: whole library of filmography yeah. of crazy serious movies. And he was a handsome man. I, I mean, hey, when you know, and like I said, I'm not like you know, Creepshow was his best acting moment, but. You can see him as a serious actor in that movie, and that kind of bridged it for me because I probably wouldn't have watched anything that he would have been in. I'm a, trying to you know, remember a creep show. Oh, God, that's a Isn't great it 70s? movie. 70s? No. Uh, no. uh No. 80s? Was it really that late? Yeah, it was great. What am I thinking of? I don't know. It's great. There's I'm like four stories. It's. Okay, I'm going to oh, have to. Maybe I'll start streaming somewhere. It's fantastic. Really? Ted Dance in it. Okay. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of, of like stars Ted are in dancing. it and a lot. Everybody wants to be in Creepshow. It was a really popular, like, horror magazine back in the day. Okay. Yeah, I can it was see really that. Good. I think we're ready to talk about our... Uh, I think we eased into it. Our subject matter at hand this evening on a Friday night. <laughs> so here we go. Episode three of Scarlet. Uh, kind of episode three. It's episode three, but only our second recording. Because we don't really know how to censor ourselves and to shut up. So... We recorded the first episode, first two episodes is what it turned out to be, all about Casey Anthony and what a crazy nightmare she turned out to be. But we decided to split that into two episodes because, we, like I said, we just couldn't stop talking about it. There's so much to talk about with that case, and I would suggest to the to the listeners, go back and listen to that episode. Because, number one, it's our first two episodes, and obviously we're green as i all get out. But um, I think we had a lot of interesting things to say about that, especially because I'm from Florida. I know exactly where all of that happened. And then uh, just perspectives, because we did do a a lot of research. And we we want to listen. Yes. But, uh, yeah. So, okay. So, yes, we, we are green as grass, of course. I did all the editing for it, listened to it all the way through. Like, start to finish completely twice, plus a few other times just as I was going through and making tweaks. I certainly had a lot of notes for us. Oh, yeah. What did did you think? Uh, You know, I thought that we were better than I expected us to be, I agree. It's not easy, and I'm sure lots of people out there are creating their own podcasts and doing this work. I have a couple of friends that I didn't realize are doing um, podcasts for sports, which... I'm sure Are your friends like, doing podcasts for sports? I have, two. Oh, oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I was like, huh, all right, yeah. interesting. So, you know, I think that if you're organized and you approach it the right way, I think you know how I, my mind works. I'm all about, you know, and spreadsheets. So I found as long as I got myself organized and I could have some train of thought and, and keep myself from being distracted, I I would get through it. And, again, you know, I think that what makes this podcast great is that we love – the subject matter. Yes, and I don't mean sure. love in a creepy way. I'm not calling people, you know, in jail and trying to get married or anything like that, but love it as in the psychological aspect of it. That's the most fascinating part. Uh, you know this. I got a amazing lithograph. Oh, whatever lenticular picture of Heath Ledger's the Joker for Christmas last year. Right. And it's like my favorite thing in the world. And when the person gave it to me, he said, I know how much you love the Joker. To be clear, we don't love serial killers. We love diving into their minds and their psychology and figuring out what goes into making them tick. Well, absolutely. And you know, I I myself am looking forward to the new Joker movie. I but do. you know, it it just gets darker and darker. And I yeah, think it definitely totally doesn't. And I'm okay with that, but I worry sometimes. I know there was a big hoo ha from folks in Aurora. Colorado, oh, yeah, about sure. that movie because of the concerns. But what saddened me about that is you've got a group of people, I mean, a country, who's concerned about, you know, and we've let it in our minds. We've let, the, let those guys, you know, they, we've let them win because now we're scared of everything. Well, totally. I was at a movie last weekend, and two guys went outside the emergency exit and propped the door open, exactly like James Holmes in Aurora, Colorado, did. I watched that door like a hawk until someone from the movie theater came in and pulled it shut. Are you bananas? Why didn't you go tell somebody? You were just watching somebody I'm walk a, I was. <laughs> You're going to watch somebody walk in and be I
0: like, know. wow, I really well, should have just, just gone and the- pulled it shut myself. I almost got up like five times. I don't I, I didn't do it. I wish I would have.
1: Oh, my God. If you would be, if something happened, you would be like sitting there going, like, oh, my God, I could have stopped. You're that.
0: right. I totally would have been that <laughs> way. I know. <laughs>
1: So uh, back to art. Yeah, back yeah, to back yeah. to why we wanted to do a podcast. <laughs> so um, you know, we work together, we spend a lot of time together, we talk about the subject matter frequently. We pretty much sit right next to each other and have for the last four years. Yeah. Uh we hear each other talk all day long. And to your point, I didn't hate our voices. I expected to. I hear you talk all day. I hear myself talk even more all day. You know, it's not, it wasn't bad. I will say it wasn't bad. I was pleasantly surprised. We hope you think that too. Yeah, exactly. So send us your thoughts. Honestly, I think, uh, you know, our fans should reach out to us. Let us know what you think. You know, feel free to be honest. We're open to suggestions. We really learned a lot. And as we dive into our next case, which I think is going to be a lot more straightforward than the Casey Anthony case, our our topic for today is Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer. Topic, his story is pretty straightforward. Every resource is pretty much the same, largely because it all comes directly from him. He is the most open book I think I've seen out there. But I've learned so much about him that I never knew. It's crazy. I can't stop watching him. And it's I find myself disturbed by that fact. I find myself disturbed by a couple of facts. I will share one with you later because uh-huh. I'm not going to blow it now. Okay. But um, you know, I he, I think, in my opinion, he is one of the most intelligent serial killers that's ever existed, as far as we know. Um, and his ability to convey his message about why he did it, the things that I that I have concerns. I will be honest. I I tr- I'm troubled by his openness to share, and I really feel like that he is incredibly manipulative. And I think that. If he, as we'll talk later about his, you know, getting close to women and how he couldn't get close to women, I find that hard to believe considering how communicative he was from where he is now, which is jail. Oh, yeah. He is. He's the biggest open book. Anyone can talk to him. And that's a huge part of That's a big reason why we picked him for this is because he's so easy to listen to. Yes. Uh, I picked Casey Anthony. You want to do Ed Kemper. Why did you pick Ed? I mean, okay. I, I kind of know why, but I want to hear you say it exactly. Because I'm fascinated. First off, I'm fascinated by the subject of, of serial killers. Uh-huh. Okay. I, um, I know that in my opinion, for the most part, I feel like that most of ser- most serial killers are driven by some psychosis. It's obviously, I don't care who you are. To be a serial killer, you have to have some kind of mental defect there's just no way for you to be a serial killer unless you do, um, just by the definition of serial killer. The other thing that I, you know, it's 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 just his ability to communicate about what he did. And I get angry when I listen to him. He compels me in a lot of different directions. Um, he just has so much to say about why he did it. And I think it's not what he's saying that I'm surprised about, because he actually says it in a way that, really undermines how horrible it actually was. But what I find is my interest in myself and listening to him because I go back and forth from, oh, I know what he did and I'm really angry about it. And how dare he? I definitely lean towards the victim's, you know, point of view. But then I get caught up in his tone and I get caught up in his ability to communicate and I start feeling sorry for him. And that makes me really angry. Well, that's the thing about him. He's mesmerizing to listen to and really where this all started at least for me i had heard of ed kemper i'd heard of the co-ed killer i didn't really know much about him until mindhunter came out yeah and he's just he's mind-boggling to listen to because i just watching watching mackenzie i don't remember his last name but the actor that plays him i just want him to like read me a story I well, I think he can read you a story because there's about 10,000 audiobooks with Ed Temper's voice on it. I know. It's beautiful, beautiful in the worst way. Well, do you think that he started, as we did when we started recording, certainly far from perfection, but do you think that he, over time, developed the, his tone and developed the way that he communicated? Because he, I mean, he couldn't have been that polished from the beginning. No, 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 he well, I don't I don't know. that's a lot of practice. Well, it is a lot of practice, but I think he's been practicing from the beginning. I think everything he did was leading up him confessing and going to prison. He had this all plotted out, so by the time we jump ahead to when he was recording the audio books, he already had his voice. He had his story rehearsed, and none of the books that as far as I know, were actually about him. But he had practiced this voice over and over and over. I don't think this was something new for him. He's the type of person that I feel like rehearsed what he was going to say so much. He would talk to himself in the
0: shower. He would look in the mirror and make sure that he had the exact tone, the exact cadence, everything down. So that way, what someone else heard was
1: exactly the way he wanted to be heard. So you really do think he was a master manipulator? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I would agree with you. Alright, so let's talk a little bit about Edmund Emile Kemper. Edmund Emil Bumblebutt Kemper. <laughs> as he referred to himself. Oh, that's so adorable. He's such a little bumblebutt. He's not little. This no, guy he... is a beast. I mean, walking watching him walk through door frames and, and squatting down to do so is, is unbelievable. He's almost a giant. Like he is he is a giant among men. Yeah. He's six nine. Yep. Uh, At times, tipping the scale at 300 pounds. So he was a big dude as well as a tall guy. And he was born big. He was born 13 pounds. No wonder his mom hated him. His mom hated (laughs) him from the day he was born. Poor guy never had a chance because she was never going to let him live that town. And she never did. (laughs) Oh, man. So, Edmund Kemper, born December eighteenth, 1948, in Burbank, California. The middle child of E.E. and Clarnell Kemper. Ed was the third Edmund Kemper in line. His dad was Ed Jr. Ed Jr. is... he's an interesting guy. Did you see much about him? I didn't. I know that he got tired of Clarnell. Oh, yeah. She was apparently a... A fairly aggressive woman, and also a big woman. I think she was over six feet tall as well. We'll we'll, we'll get in more to Clarnell, but a little bit about Ed Jr. or Ed II. He's a World War II veteran, and I found a great quote about him and Clarnell. Uh, first off, Ed is Ed the third, uh, the one we're talking about. Is the second of three children. He had an older and younger sister, and his parents divorced when he was at a pretty young age. Ed Senior or Ed excuse me, Ed Jr., Ed II, had this to say about his former wife, Clarnell, that he was a World War II veteran, and he tested nuclear weapons in the Pacific uh, Proving Grounds before he went back to California to start his life and get married. He would go on to say that suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. Clarnell <laughs> affected him more than three hundred and ninety-six days and nights of fighting in the front lines. Oh my God! Well, the way she raised Ed the Third and the way she treated her family is no excuse for what would eventually happen. No. But Ed Kemper, the one we're going to talk about, he had a rough go of it from the start. He did. Um, his parents got divorced when he was nine. He was then living with his mother and his two sisters. He moved to Montana with them after, again, the divorce. He had to live with his alcoholic mother, his sisters. And at right around that time, it appears that Farnell started putting Edmund in the basement to sleep at night because she was concerned about what he may do to his sister's. And this wasn't just like, I'm from the Midwest. I don't know what basements are like in Florida. We don't have basements in Florida. We're we're at water level. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. There aren't really basements in California either. In the Midwest, basements are pretty much the entire main floor duplicated underground. Like, they're big if they're finished. Some of them are dirt. I got the impression, maybe it's in my head, but I got the impression that Edmund was you know pretty much living in a dugout hole with a furnace and a fire and he's sitting there in front of it because she wouldn't allow him to have light. that's exactly my point when i when i think about basements i think of a large room that mirrors everything above you this was not that this was essentially a hole in the ground exactly that's all it was and one time it was even described as pretty much someone lifted a latch under the kitchen table and he went under and hung out down there yeah. I don't know if it was quite that bad, but no, it was it was bad. Yeah, it, it definitely was bad. I mean, certainly, in my opinion, there's nothing that he should have done that would have sort of required that kind of behavior from her. But I have to give Clarnell a little credit because I think there were things that were happening with Edmund that may have been apparent to her to cause her concern. I, I think at that, right around that age, he had killed a couple of cats. One he buried alive. The other one, he actually cut off the head of the cat, and put it in his mother's closet? Uh, yes. So he did bury a cat alive. Uh, then, of course, it died. He dug that same cat up, decapitated it, and mounted its head on a spike. And where did he put that? In his bedroom, or did he share it with his family? <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure. I think he made one in his bedroom, but uh, he then killed the other cat because he thought it was showing favoritism to his sister. Well, likely, because he may have seen it kill the other cat. And he, would have been like, he knew what was coming. That dude's crazy. I'm going to go hang out with you guys. Um, you know, the, the animal cruelty thing is, is part of the McDonald triad. People talk about it mm-hmm. a lot. You know, the McDonald triad and the homicidal triad, same thing. Um, you know, it makes up a series of three different events that could happen that people... Considered to be predictors of homicidal or sexually predatory behavior. So you've got bedwetting on one end of the triad. You've got animal cruelty on the other end, and then you've got fire setting. Essentially, all three or any combination of two is a predictor of violent behavior. So I found that really interesting. And again, you know, Carnell may be a lot of things, but she's probably right. I would guess that if Edmund, in his later years, treated... Coeds uh, known as the co-ed killer, uh, if he treated people, women in particular, the way he treated if, if he would have treated his sisters like that, then no wonder Parnell was concerned. And she was probably right. Again, no, there's no good reason for treating him as she did. I would have probably thought that she would have gotten him some mental help, certainly with a cat incident, she must have not liked these cats very much.: Well, this was also back in 1957. So, mental health at that time was a lot of institutionalization, mm, true, so we're not talking about psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists like we have available today at the same effect. Well, I don't think the basement's a good answer <laughs> it's, it's certainly not a good answer, and I'm not justifying what she did at all, but she was she was an alcoholic, she was focused on herself only, but it wasn't just her that experienced this also he at one point snuck out of the house and went outside to uh, his second grade teacher's home to stand out and look inside her window, essentially stalk her. And his older sister asked him, why didn't you try to kiss her? Which is a weird thing to ask about why you wouldn't try to kiss a teacher. From outside the house while you're spying on her. How old was he? Uh... I think it's right around the same time, eight, nine, maybe a little bit older, but his response to why he didn't try to kiss her, this is a precursor to the future, if I kiss her, I have to kill her. So, we'll talk about this a little later, but Ed, Edmund, uh, had a predisposition for corpses. We, oh, yeah. That was, the, seemed appeared to be the only way that he could find sexual gratification, and, you know, I'm not sure if this was because he felt like he was in complete control of a corpse or if that was the only way that he could be gratified it it, it's unknown and he doesn't appear to talk about it very often he doesn't really but when i say also so obviously his sisters antagonized him to kind of push him there but he claims to have had two near-death experiences did you see this no. Once. In, in the s- basement? Yeah. His sister tried to drown him. One sister tried to drown him. Oh, Jesus. How and, old was he when that These are all when he was a young child before the age of 15, because we know things really take a turn at the age of 15. But so one sister tried to drown him. Another one pushed him in front of a train. Oh, so, oh my God. He was either evil incarnate from the beginning and they knew it, or this poor kid never had a prayer with the other women in his life. Were the sisters known to be act- to be like Clarnell? I don't know anything else about the sisters. By okay. the way, the sisters are probably still alive, because he is. Oh, probably. He's like, I think, 72 or something right now. Yeah. So at least his younger sister, his older sister can't be that much older than him either. Yeah. They're probably running around talking about how they torture poor Ed into probably. craziness. Um, he did also have a tendency to cut the heads off of his sister's dolls. But who didn't do that? Everyone cut their heads off the Barbie dolls. Ah. Ah. No, you didn't. Do it. Was that just me? No, it was I. No, I really liked my dolls, <laughs> Actually, I had a whole home built for my Barbies, and I, I did had a dream it. house. I built my own dream oh. house, which was just a series of paper boxes. I made my own well, elevator. That's, that's even more special. It is really special. Is. I made a shoebox. I, that was their car. I drove her and Ken to the drive-in, which is pretty much in front of the TV. Yeah, of I made him a water bed with colored water Whoa. in it. Oh, Ken and Barbie in the bed. Yeah. I, could, I was so poor, I couldn't even afford Barbie clothes, so I just made her dresses out of socks. I thought you were going to say you drew her clothes on her. No. <laughs> no, but she had that in clothes. That would be inappropriate. <laughs> of course it would be inappropriate. <laughs> this is the PG show. So, back to Ed. We, uh, you know, Ed's cutting heads off of his sister's dolls, he's coercing them into playing games with him. Yeah, uh, let's particular... about those games. Yeah, he, uh, which, I, you know, hey, again, I'm not sure how a kid that old gets these ideas. What, is he watching TV and he sees something about gas chamber and he says- I don't know says, if he's even watching TV. We're talking, again, like, 1957, late 50s, house in Montana. I don't know if they have TV. How does he know about gas chambers? I have no idea! The news? Newspapers? Maybe. I and mean, anyway. I know that people were pretty interested in grizzly things back in the day. Sure. I mean, they used to attend, you know, people getting their heads cut off, and I think there was, you know, public stoning and things were still happening until, what, the 30s or something ridiculous? We're still, like, 20 years later, 30 years later. Yeah. So, for some, sure. I mean... Public stonings in America? Yeah. Really? The civil rights! Civil rights movement. I mean, people were getting very, very hurt. Okay, I'm thinking more as like a... A regular punishment. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was a regular punishment (laughs) in the South. There was a a lot of bad things happening. The civil rights movement was, you know, a very sad time for the United States. But that's a conversation for another day. Absolutely, and I'm not saying that the civil rights movement was bad. I'm saying that the response to the civil rights movement was to be appalling. But we'll go there another day. Thanks for clarifying. Uh, yeah, of course. In case anyone was concerned. Well, I mean, it's been what less than a hundred years where women could vote. So oh, it, yeah, of course, it hasn't been that long. We have. Well, now we're talking about suffrage. So many, you know, we have been oppressed. Lots of us. So gas chambers and electric chairs. Yes. And his had... favorite games. Yeah. With I played sisters. house in school. I Sometimes played teacher right. in school. Uh-huh. Or um, at the house. But here's what's weird about it. I didn't, just, you know, aside, I thought it was interesting that he wanted to be the one that was being put to death. Oh, yeah. No, he I didn't, didn't put them to death. No. Which, hey, sis, go pull the lever so I can get electrocuted. Yeah. And then he would sort of squirm around in his chair and, uh-huh. you know. But gas chamber is a different Game, by the it? way, because oh, I know. he's laying. Like, he must have. I don't know. how, You don't. You know, wiggle around. I mean, you're just gasping You dead. Gasping for air. Yeah, I guess you are. Yeah, I mean, not to get too dark, but you yeah. know, the Holocaust movies I've seen that seems to be what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because there are. all well, we won't go down that road no. today. But that was that was a terrible thing as well. Um, okay. okay, so we are talking about it. Ed eventually tried to go live with his father for a time because I think his mother and his sisters just got tired and concerned enough to where they just had to move him. Well, and Ed was really close with his dad. He was devastated when his dad moved out and when Ed and his mom and his sisters moved to Montana. Yeah, I mean, what's strange about that is if Ed was really close with his dad, he should have taken him with him. Well, Ed was close with his dad, but that doesn't mean his dad was close with that Oh, interesting. Oh, that's really sad. It is really sad. This guy, it, he had a sad life. His childhood was really rough. Because when he did move back with his dad, he moved back to California. His dad had started another family. And apparently his new wife was not interested in having Ed been around for probably a variety of reasons. Well, I'm sure for a lot of reasons. And Ed felt major competition with his new step sibling. Absolutely. Not to mention somebody was probably concerned about him with the step siblings oh, as well. Man. So, off to live with his paternal grandparents, he goes, because his dad just could not have him in the house anymore. Um, rightly said. So. Is it my turn now? <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird <laughs> you. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's so much to say about the grandparents. There's so much to say. So if he goes to live with his paternal grandparents in North Forks, which, which I think is California. It is California. Okay. I think it's outside of Sacramento. I think that's right, too. Yeah, it's Northern California. Yeah. It's, I don't know if you've been to Sacramento, but it's interesting up there. It's
0: it's an interesting place. I went for a wedding once. That's my only experience. It was like a 48-hour stay. Yeah. Nothing really spectacular.
1: No. I do like Northern California. It's a different feel, certainly from Southern California. It's like a completely different state. Well, I think that San Francisco and, and that yeah. area, certainly. But Sacramento and Modesto and some of those areas, they're very, very, very um, conservative. Oh, they're super conservative. And his stay with his grandparents was miserable for Ed because it seemed like Clarnell took after her mother-in-law. Ed's paternal grandmother was very demeaning, very controlling, and Ed was miserable staying with them. He didn't seem to mind his grandfather so much, but his grandmother was really the authoritarian in the family and didn't let Ed get away with anything. Which is probably why Edmund, number two, married her because Farnell, because that was a representation of his mom. Exactly. Um, So I think that well Ed may have not had an enjoyable time living with his grandparents it certainly must have been better than living in the basement um you are right was it uh, well at least he wasn't living living in the basement no he was he had the freedom to run around the farm he enjoyed learning about firearms. He apparently was fairly skilled at it. His grandfather had given him a rifle. And, and taught him how to shoot. Taught him how to shoot. Apparently his grandparents did not mind when he shot small game. It was a, a twenty two rifle. Right. Which is a pretty, honestly, it's, you'd have to, it, it's not meant to kill anything smaller or bigger than probably a rabbit. Um, it will do damage, so. It's um, not a terribly, terribly powerful rifle, but apparently his grandmother was offended when he started killing birds, so they took the rifle away from him. That's fair. Uh, sure. I and mean, she made a safe assessment. Well, and she also apparently had a forty five caliber revolver that she kept in her drawer and started to carry it with her on her person frequently because she started to get more and more concerned about it. All right. Um, and that, that is concerning in and of itself. It's too bad that, you know, what, I, what seems to be missing from Ed's life is obviously no relationship with the maternal side of his family and very little communication with the men in his life. Because if he would have communicated with them and shared any of these thought, these thoughts, I mean, it. It sounds like he was all felt very isolated. Oh, for sure. And in being in that isolation, it's him in his own mind. And you're right. If he's talking to himself and he's rehearsing his spiel um, in his own mind, which is which is probably true because he to get to the state that he must have gotten to to be able to do some of these things, he must have in his mind heard himself say it enough to where it sounded okay. It sounded normal. It was justified in his mind because he had told himself certainly on more than one occasion that what he was doing was for the right reason. Well, I want to talk about this a little bit more later, but I think Ed Kemper is a classic example for the question of nature versus nurture. If it is nurture, which psychology would lean heavily on that it is, and we'll discuss that, then I can agree with what you're saying. But if it's nature, I don't know that he really had to convince himself or talk himself into it. I think he may have even just had that side of it. And even as an adult, he would go on to say when he was confessing to future murders that he had two, almost two personalities. He wasn't ever officially diagnosed with multiple personalities or split personality disorder, but he were dissociative identity, I guess it was officially called. Well, he was when he was in the, the mental health facility diagnosed with schizophrenia, but I think they found later that that wasn't actually the case. That's correct. That was ultimately retracted. But he would say he felt like he would become a different person, and he couldn't control that. To a point that it almost is a, like a, a tulpa, which is a fascination I just learned about. <laughs> you know about tulpas? No. They are fascinating. All right, I'll look it's up tulpas. It's a belief that people have that another Notice. person, T-U-L-P-A, please look up tulpas if you're interested. There's a fantastic podcast out there about tulpas, and the people that have them, and they call themselves tulpamancers, and oh. so I'm going to leave it at that. But essentially oh, okay. what they believe... Is that there is another person living inside their head, and whenever that other person decides to, that person takes over, and the native person is loses control or the ability to fight it. <coughs> I'm not sure that that's the case with Ed, but that is one of the things that he would say. Now, we talked about already how he's such a master manipulator, that could just be him but i think that was a way for edmund not to not to take responsibility for his actions because if he's saying that it's it really wasn't him or it was a part of him that he couldn't control he's dismissing that it he is one person, right? Of course. You know, I mean, I think, and I, and he frequently did that. What was really strange about it is sometimes he would talk about it like it wasn't even him doing it. No, exactly. I mean, he really had justified this by the fact that he really wasn't there and he wasn't in control of it. No, no, which no. is near impossible. By the way, let's go back a moment. Let's think about Edmund as a an eight year old boy. I just want to get like some kind of size sizing up of Ed. If Ed was 6'4 when he was 15, how big do you think he was when he was 8 or 9? He had to be at least low to mid-5 feet, I would say. If he, That means he would have grown a foot and four inches in four years. I think he might have been a little bigger than that. He might have been. Which means as a child, a really small child, he wasn't small. He was born thirteen pounds. Yeah. Of course, he was never he was small. So if, I mean, he, even if you're born thirteen pounds, you've got to be a solid like what twenty one inches. Jesus, I was twenty one inches, and I was seven pounds. Twenty eight, twenty nine uh-huh. inches. That's almost three feet. I know yeah. you're born. Yes. Yeah, two and a half feet. That's uh, crazy. That's a yardstick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Holy Moses! Mm-hmm. Like I mean, this kid—he was never small. So. I think it might have had something to do with the way that he was raised because I think that he was much more fragile inside, but on the outside, he had the appearance of being much older. He always did. And it's almost, because he was so big from such a young age, it's almost, I'm actually surprised, maybe he did have a real diagnosis. Maybe he would have been diagnosed had he been born later, but because he was born at such a time that medicine hadn't evolved yet. But it was almost like agronomaly, I believe it is, or agrocephaly or something, Mm. which is essentially the overgrowth of a gland, your pituitary gland, which causes you to grow to a normal size. Kind of like Andre to the Giant. Exactly. But the thing about Edmund, I mean, he's obviously still alive. He's 72. He never, it doesn't, he's he's not um, out of proportion. No, no, no. And he never, I think that if that did happen, which you're probably right. It must have stopped at some point and that must have reset itself because like with Andre the Giant, with a lot of people who have, it's like gigantism. Exactly. Um, There are significant health issues that go along. And he may not have had that specifically. (laughs) Apparently Ed's going to live forever. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing that he's still going today, but he may not have had that in particular, but I think there was definitely something going on with his growth hormones for him to be so large. When he was born, certainly you see all sorts of athletes, basketball players in particular, that are very tall, that are also proportionate. But I don't know that they start from the size that he started at. Oh, agreed. I, I don't. I mean, and the like, only person I can think of who's six nine and maybe around that height would be like Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, and, he's like seven foot seven one. But yeah, but like I said, you've got some basketball
0: players that are six ten, six eleven.
1: But I don't. I don't know that they start out. Thirteen pounds. No, he was just a big dude all the way around. Yes. His hands must be massive. Um, okay, so sort of sizing that up. Because, you know, again, Ed at 15, he's six four. Right. You know, his his grandparents are concerned about him having a rifle. His grandmother is putting a forty five in her purse. Mm-hmm. She's taking it out of her drawer because she's concerned. I think she walked in on him when he was looking at it one time. And then later on, as he's talking about the murder of his grandmother, which she goes on to do... Because he just wanted to feel like what it, just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma. I think he was pissed at his grandma. I think he was too. Yeah, he, she took away something from him that probably was one of the only things that he enjoyed. Well, I think she, to him, she embodied his mother, which he was trying to get away from when he moved to live with his father. And then his father didn't want him there. So he sent Ed the third to live with his grandparents. And now his grandma really didn't want him there either. Yeah. So you know, Edmund, and he has no connection with anyone really. No. If he has a connection no with wants him. Wants him, and no one wants him. If he has a connection with anyone. It's his grandfather, but he's got his grandmother in between them. So that's probably really challenging. He also feels very, very judged because I think at one point in one of the interviews that I had heard, he was talking about how he had killed his grandmother, and he was so upset with her because he didn't understand why she wouldn't leave the 45 in the house, but he was talking about it after he had killed her, so yeah. it's like, well, no kidding Why yet. would she? Yeah, that she could be killed with her own 45, um, and I think that he had no problems with that. He Apparently he shot, so he's 50, he's 6'4". He walks up, you know, he had, had an argument with his grandmother. She's sitting at the table reading a kid, children's book that she wrote, which is interesting because if she's such an awful woman. It's like, I wonder what she's writing. I don't know if any of those books are published, but it would be fascinating to see what she was writing. It would writing. be interesting to find out. Yeah. He, um, so he walks up behind her, and he just shoots her in the back of the head, um, if I'm not mistaken. He shoots her a That's couple right. of times. And then, um, apparently, to keep his grandfather from having to deal with the sight of his dead grandmother, he goes outside and kills him on the driveway.
0: On the driveway
1: as he's walking into the house, which is, in Ed's mind, Almost like the right thing to do, because he didn't want his grandfather to have to see the sight of his dead wife. So he felt like he was protecting his grandfather to a certain extent. Yes, absolutely. And again, I think that's Ed making an excuse for why he really did it, which is... Maybe not, you know, because clearly he knows that he's going to get caught for this. He's not going to. He's not covering it up. He's not going to say, oh, you know, he's not doing it, so no one would, you know, acknowledge that he did it. No, he no. clearly knows that he did it, and he's going to tell people he did it. Well, so much so that he calls his mom right away and confesses to it. And yeah, and she tells me. him to call the police. <laughs> yes. call the police, Yeah, and, and he does. You idiot. So he he has no problem confessing right away. He realizes it. And it's almost like immediate remorse. He knew what he did was a terrible thing. And he knew he had to own up to it. What? Did he really know it was a terrible thing? I don't know if he if he really he knew, knew it was a terrible thing in the world. I don't know if he felt but remorse for it. Right. He didn't feel that it but was he a terrible knew, thing. But it was, he knew it was a bad thing. And he knew that he had to own up for it. Whether he was remorseful or not, he knew that he had to own up to it. Yeah. Agreed. Because, and in... And, 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 that's so classic of a child that is, he's neglected in so many ways, and he's been rejected by all these people in his family. He's this large 15-year-old kid who's trying to be independent, but then... Bumblebutt. <laughs> he's a bumblebutt! butt. <laughs> and then he the, recedes into his childhood, and his first instinct is to call his mom. He just wants support and help from his mom. Agreed. And I think that's something we'll see throughout his life is that no matter how much Ed says that he hates his mom, he always ends up back with her. Oh sometimes it's not his choice, but frequently it is. A hundred percent. He desperately wants to talk to her. He wants to communicate with her. You know. He wants his mom's approval. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's really what he was fighting for his entire life. He just wanted his mom's approval. Yeah. I think it... And then... I think for a while. And then eventually that completely goes away because it's not possible. Well, but the gra- they, those two gravitating back to each other yes. was a dangerous combo. Right. And I think you're right. I think he realized finally that he was never going to get it. But I think it, he would also later say that so much of what he did was because his mom told him that he could never have what he wanted, which was essentially to be normal and to be loved. It, it, by her or anyone anyone by like uh. anyone and, and had he had she just given him the love that he wanted he feels like he could have turned out to be a different person i don't think she had love to give i'm not sure that she did either she i mean was, she, she was, was a raging racial. alcoholic she I was mean.
0: exactly she was not she had to take care of herself and like we said i don't even know what happened to the daughters she had certainly a lot of issues that she had to deal with and I don't
1: know if she had love to give or not, but Ed would go on to ultimately say the spree that he went on was 100% to blame on Clarnell, which... Of course he does. I know. We'll, we'll digest that a little bit. It, and, and maybe so, but, you know, as we talk about what he actually did to those bodies and what he did to those women, I start to question that. Because oh, he seemed to have an awful lot of fun with them after the fact. Oh, well, absolutely. But before we jump in there... All right, let's talk about his stay in a mental health facility in California. Because after he called and confessed to the killings, he turned himself in at 15, he was sentenced to a mental health facility because he was found to be uh, psychologically incompetent, or he was. He Clearly was like, something was wrong. He shot yeah, his was put into like a psych- psychiatric hold and put into a state facility. Right. And a lot of things happened at this facility. I think he was there from age 15 to 22. 21. 21. 21. Yes. He um, spent a lot of time, in my opinion, getting a, a really fine education on the finer points of um, you know, human psychosis. He did. It, he was also there at that exact time. He was diagnosed legally as a genius. At 15, his IQ was 136. It would continue to go up slightly. Ultimately, it would hit a peak of 145, which is genius level. The average human IQ is 100. So this guy is a brilliant man. But he was diagnosed, to what I was talking about before, as dissociative identity. At the time, it was diagnosed as personality trait disturbance, colon, the passive-aggressive type. I what was he that was, given after he killed his grandparents? It was given after yeah, while he was incarcerated or in treatment, really officially, is what it is. So apparently that was the aggressive part of that. Uh, the aggressive of the passive aggressive personality. Well, I guess started. so. I mean, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure out that Ed had some mental problems. What we call it is, and I don't even know what we call it these days. Is he a sociopath? I don't. I, mean, I don't think he's a psychopath. I think he was. I think he would ultimately be diagnosed clinically diagnosed as a sociopath yeah and he was really good at it i mean he was really good at it he was good at it and he got better over the years because he had a very captive audience for many 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 years i don't know if he talks to anybody now but he he had frequent conversations he spent a lot of time with the behavioral science unit um talking about i mean he essentially set the norm and, and conveyed his message and helped them understand what a serial killer actually is and develops he, some he, he categories. the
0: definition of a serial killer. Like he is the yeah. textbook
1: definition. The first, one of the first, if not officially, well, like the first documented. Yeah, that's and helped help them help them document it. I oh, absolutely. Mean, it yes. was a huge help because not many people at, who were serial killers could speak about it as eloquently as he did. No, for sure. But let's jump back a little bit to the education, as you were saying, that he got while he was institutionalized, because he learned a lot what thought, was thought to be kind of incidental him just helping out was actually training for the personality traits that he would develop later on in life. Oh, absolutely. He was essentially a, uh, what you would call an aide or an assistant to the psychologist at the mental health facility. And by the way, mental health facilities in 1964, I don't think they were very nice. And if I'm not mistaken, Ed, wasn't exactly from a wealthy family. So it would have probably... it a state foreign facility very 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 poor conditions um, but he made the best of it he got a really good education as an assistant to that psychologist he had access to all of the case files and he was able to sit in on most of the communication between the psychologist and the other he, he it, ran psych like tests on yeah. the other inmates so he he was he was running his own tests yeah, He was yeah. talking to these these you know convicts essentially who were mentally ill and a mentally um, challenged convict, you know, is at the very least unpredictable. <laughs> he's putting it nicely. Well, and you know... Yeah, of course a mentally challenged convict is unpredictable. Well, that's very scary. Yeah, you know, it is. For him to be able to develop relationships with these people who are, were, I mean, mentally ill folks, you know, especially people who have violent tendencies, anything could happen. Oh, And yeah. of course, Ed's 6'9", so was, he's 6'4", at this time. But, you know, he... He, again, you know, he endeared himself to these people. They've had confidence in him. They wanted him to be there. They confided in him. He endeared himself to them, though, too. He built trust with the psychiatrist. So much so that he actually helped develop new tests and diagnoses. For the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory,
0: which I guess is a psychiatric survey to help diagnose. And uh, specifically, the new tests and scales that he helped
1: develop were in the Overt Hostility Scale. Hmm. He developed the overt hostility scale. He worked with the psychiatrist to help develop the overt hostility scale. Based on himself as the... Probably based on himself, but also based on, as you were saying, sitting in with the other patients. Oh, I see. So categorizing. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And Mm -hmm. with his high level of intelligence anyway, his, his 136 and what would go on in 145, they really trusted him. It, that's what Ed was really great at doing was building, trust in people. Well, obviously he, you know, as the co-ed killer and a lady talk later talk about, he was able to communicate with women to get in the car with him and talk to him. And, um, you know, to, to the extent that he, he was able to do what he did. He obviously had trust in those, they, those folks, folks had trust in him. And in doing that, leading up to it, he was able to hone his skills by learning how to manipulate the psychiatrist's and then also speaking with sex offenders to essentially get tips on them from them on how to get away with it. Well, not only that, but if I'm not mistaken, he in looking at the files and seeing the files, apparently he sexually gratified himself okay. uh, with the, with the pictures. So uh-huh. he again, he knew very early on that there were some sexual issues that he was dealing with. I'm not sure if that has actually ever had sex with a woman. A live woman. Well, yes, a live woman. And. And has not I, I mean, has he ever had a relationship with anyone? Uh, well, that kind of jumps into the next point. So, on his twenty-first birthday, he was released from a Tescadero, which is the Northern California mental health facility, released back into the care with his mom. Despite the prison doctor's recommendation that he not live with her. Okay. Why didn't anyone look at her, listen, or care? It's a doctors. terrible idea. It's a horrible idea to send him back with his trigger. It really is what it is. Can you really send someone back? I mean, was he put in her care because he, uh, is she responsible for him? No one else would take responsibility. He's 21. He's an adult. Can he walk out? Well, he was released on parole. So he had to go somewhere else. He uh, had to be taken. Got it. Yes. And she had remarried at that at that point. Hmm. So, wow. Yeah, okay. she remarried and moved to uh, Aptos, California, which is very near Santa Cruz, where she took in a job as an administrative assistant at UC Santa Cruz. Got which it. Which would, of course, become, as Ed would call it, hunting ground. Wow. Well. She worked there, and she loved loved where she worked, and she loved all the women at you know where she was working. They, I'm sure, reminded her of their daughters, so on and so on. Um, so she moved to Santa Cruz because she had gotten divorced, and that's when she went to work at University of California as an administrative assistant. Correct. Santa Cruz, in my opinion, is a very nice place. I That's beautiful. But at the time, Santa Cruz was known as the murder capital uh, of the United yeah. States because I think there were three serial killers there were. working there at the same time. Yes. And one of them later, um, as Ed would go to prison and end up where he is now, would be in prison with that one of those serial killers. So oh, right. they would communicate with each other, and Ed would actually pick on Herman, or Herbert, I think. I think it was, it was Herbert. Mullins. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they communicated frequently about what Santa Cruz life. I don't know if I'm going to keep this in, but I'm going to read this anyway. So this is the report, the probation report from one of the psychiatrists. If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illness. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the use of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason for him to, uh, to consider him to be of any danger to himself or any member of society. And since it, it it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. So that was his parole paperwork. That's correct. Got it. And then I think... Uh... That would, of course, I think, carry on, and Ed, as he did continue to work and get these, like, his grandparents and the death of his grandparents expunged from his record. Exactly. So this was all at 21 years of age, his entire history was erased. Do you think that, well, I think it took a couple of years to get it erased, but this was all happening at the same time as he was, he started to test. Well, Ed moved to Santa Cruz. He lived with his mother. She was, again, just getting divorced from her third marriage. He went into community college, worked a variety of jobs, and then he eventually found employment with the Department of Transportation in 1971. So he's, that's he, 23 years of age. Right. But that's after he tried to become a police officer. And uh, he, yes. He was correct. rejected from the police academy because he was too large. Right. Which tall. Too, well, yes. Too tall. Too tall. There are a lot of fat cops. <laughs> That's never stopped him before. Ed Tuttle Kemper. Yeah. Which is that a bad quality in a police officer? I think you got to fit in the car.
0: Okay, I suppose, but if you got a 6'9, 275 at the guy at the time coming at you, it's pretty imposing. I don't know that many people are going to try and take it up with a guy that size. To me,
1: that would have been a good thing. I may not have ended up the way he was. Um, but well, what would he have driven? I mean, honestly, really, convertible? I mean, they didn't really have SUVs. I was just about to say, it was, not pre, rolling... was pre-SUV. <laughs> he's not rolling up in his exhibition. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Um, he, but he he wanted to be, wanted to work for what is now the CHP. He could have been a chip. Yeah, uh, well, tr- true. On a bike. That is very, well, he did ride a motorcycle. Yes, so- Um, you know, Ed hung around with with the Santa Cruz police officers. He desperately wanted to be a police officer. I think he hung out at the jury room. The jury room across the street from the courthouse. Yeah, he spent a lot of time at that, uh, at that bar talking to his police buddies. He was a, quote, friendly nuisance. Whoa, that's my, I want to be a friendly nuisance. Sonia, you are a friendly nuisance. That is really true. And it depends on who you ask, but I would (laughs) so agree with you. (laughs) that's alright, that's called persistence that, well if, if Ed was anything, he was persistent he was, but he was a big cuddly dude, I mean, it was amazing how many people would vouch for him one yeah. of the police officers gave him a training school badge and handcuffs well, that's kind another, of adorable. That's adorable like, he was a freaking adult 6'9", nine. Well, do like that like, I think he's like men like a challenge. Like, me. like, <laughs> I know, but that's like a toddler going on an airplane for the first time and getting a wingspin but no, hey, he's a grown man. so they're having a shot of whiskey with him, and they're giving him a training match <laughs> and handcuffs. Here you go, Ed. Well, another oh, let him borrow funny. a gun. Hey, like, little guy. Let me buy you a round and give you some handcuffs. Oh my! And, and and Kemper even had a car that looked like a police uh, police uh, cruiser. Oh yeah, he had a Plymouth Fury, <laughs> which. I was driving out of my neighborhood the other day on the work. I took a picture of it on my phone for you because there was a Plymouth Fury in my hood. And no it would have been a, one, the, around the same year as yeah. this. Yeah. Light blue. like pearl blue. It was great. I a, to me. It's great. We'll put it up on Twitter. Oh, yeah. For sure. It's a... Uh, I mean, if you know what a Plymouth Fury, Fury looks like. Obviously, Ed's in that car. So that... So let's think about that for a second. If Ed could drive a Plymouth Fury that resembled a police cruiser... yeah. How come he couldn't fit in a police car?
0: Okay, my point. That's weird. I feel like even though his record was officially expunged when he went to the police academy, or I don't even know if it was called the police academy in the late 60s, but when he
1: went there, the excuse was he was too large, he was too tall. I feel like there's got to be more to it then. Oh, you think that they were worried about Ed? Well, you have to go through a Or how of, annoying would he have been or, as a partner? Well, I mean, really. Sure, but you have to go through a battery of psychological tests. He he's be, an expert at psychological but tests. He, he's an expert at manipulating people, but if it comes to written tests that you don't know are psychological or psychiatric, okay. those are more difficult to manipulate. I, I would guess. Yes, cre- I, I know. bet he's pretty good at that. Who knows? Yes. But to your point. Um, all right, so the same year I began working for the highway department, he was actually hit by a car while out on his motorcycle. That he would, had a motorcycle. That would make for three near-death experiences. <sighs> well, this one was his own fault, because I feel like if you ride a motorcycle, you're taking your life into your own hands. <laughs> you're opening that door. His arm, uh, I know, his arm was badly injured. He received a $15,000 settlement in the civil suit. He filed against the car's driver. So $15,000 in 1970-something. Probably be about $90,000. Hang on, I'm going to do the math. Okay. Well, you do the math. I'm I'm ballparking it. Yeah, no, that's probably a good ballpark. That means, I mean, what year? Generally, four times. Like seventy four or five, something like that. No, because can't go on a spree until I don't even know what seventy four. I think. So maybe seven. We're gonna call it nineteen seventy three. Currency conversion. So unable to work, Kemper turned his mind towards other pursuits. He noticed a large number of women hitchhiking in the area. And the new car he bought with some of his settlement money, Kemper began storing the tools he thought he might need to fulfill his murderous desires. And where did he live during this time? said he lived in Santa Cruz with his mother. You're sure right. He did. So he heard <laughs> his arm. Close, by the way. He heard his mom. Eighty-six, Yeah. Okay. Eight, almost eighty-seven thousand dollars. right. That's not a lot for a settlement. So he could have been two hundred. Yeah. Okay. But it apparently hurt his arm enough to where he couldn't work, or he said so anyway. But he had plenty of energy to drive around with a gun and knife and handcuffs in his car. Now, it took Ed a while to build up to this, or to build up the courage and probably the expertise to be able to proceed with some of his murders. Okay, hang on a second. We do have to back up. Because I got my timeline a little bit wrong, but when I thought earlier... After he was released from a Tescadero, he got engaged. I was wrong. It, that was he got he was... engaged. Yes. So Ed got engaged. Ed got engaged to a sixteen-year-old woman or teenage girl. It is really what it is. It didn't last. Well, uh huh. Yeah. No, I know. Uh huh. You think he had sex with her? Can we can we talk about that out here? I mean, I was wondering that too. Well, I hope. I mean, that yeah, would make it his only experience, unless he had other experiences. I never got the impression he had sex with anybody. I didn't either. Lie. I, no, uh, right, not a lot. So what happened? What's the story with with the girl he met her? Does it? Do we know? Did they meet at like you know church? <laughs> Where would you meet a sixteen year old when you're what twenty something, twenty three, which is probably uh, yeah, probably. I don't know. It was. It was when he was working, essentially, at the California DOT. Hmm. So he wasn't a cop, but he was working at the DOT. So he met her. Maybe she was hitchhiking. She might have been a hitchhiker, for all I know. Maybe. Because so he had conversations with a female then. He okay, must have yeah, had sure. some connection with at least one female in his life. He did. And then it seems to have fallen apart after he got the, in the accident and had to move back in with his mom. Oh. But he had to live with his mom. No, no, no. He had moved out moved in with a friend. Uh, for a very short boy, month. that must have been a roommate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ed. He moved to Alameda, the Big A.
1: Did, oh god! Did um, I like Alameda. Is there he has some nice parts? Uh, uh, maybe a memorial for Ed. Did we ever find out who his uh, roommate is? And did they ever communicate about? As was was I he another? Him. Oh, Ed was a really cool guy. He paid for pizza. He was a stand-up gent.
0: I, I have no idea. I don't know. I, to be honest, I just found out about it last night. To
1: me, After like the three weeks of researching him, I just found out about it last night. Well, there's a lot to know. I mean, to, that, that's one area that I really tried to look into the Kemper, the Kemper mind. You know, I googled. You know, what is Jed Kemper's favorite movie? What's his favorite oh, movie? Really? Yeah, uh-huh. I'm like, what what makes this guy like tick? What's, yeah, yeah, what's sure. the normal thing? For sure, I, I think that there's a lot to be said about the kind of music in the movies you like. Honestly, I think that could, that's a little telling that about behavior. says a lot about us. Probably. I'm a lot darker in my taste, and I think that you're probably more mainstream. I th- oh, no, I think I'm pretty dark. Really? Well, not in music, but in movies. I like dark yeah, movies. Yeah, I do, too. What's your favorite dark movie? What's your classification of dark? You just said it. You must have a classification. I would say, well, I, you know I love horror movies. I love suspense thrillers. One movie that I absolutely love and this gets back to psychology that is, it's a movie I love but never want to watch again. It's called Buried. Oh my, I can't watch that. I'm claustrophobic. Oh my god. Nope. It was the most visceral movie I have ever watched. I, I felt like I was in there with him. I'm getting anxiety right now. Uh-huh. About it. All right, what's your favorite dark movie? <sighs> my favorite dark movie I'd say it would probably be like uh, Saw or Hostel, which ruins me for traveling. I like Europe. Saw a lot. Hostel's alright. I, 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 it's terrible. I mean, the, the, the practical are we, effects. Are you talking that like I, torture porn kind of movies? No, not necessarily porn. That's really porn. what I consider. Well, but I consider those like torture porn. It's not porn but it's, I mean. It's like I don't like know. When, when people say porn, I think of like something that gives me sexual yeah, like, no, excitement. No, 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 no. I, I definitely mean, don't have like that. the porn. over the top Like, ridiculous violence. It's violence for violence. Sort of. Except for me, because I've been in the film business for so long, and I've worked on projects that had a lot of practical effects, um, including one of the first movies I ever did. And I worked with a person named Carl Fullerton, who was one of the most amazing special effects makeup artists. And he he really specialized in autopsies and death. Mm -hmm. And he was amazing at it. So, you know, we had a couple of scenes in that movie when we were shooting that were just you know, autopsy scenes, and really, really, really vivid. And the practical effects of that kind of thing, I think, is really fascinating. Oh, I agree. And we're talking about slasher murder. I always go back to the first Halloween, and I cheer for Michael Myers. But there was not even any blood in that movie. No, I know, but... That's thriller. That's more like thriller, It's totally thriller. I mean, we're not talking about gore, but... You really want to talk about the psychology of it? It plays into the viewer's mind because yeah. it doesn't show much. It shows stabbing motions. There's some blood in there. I mean, he does like impale a guy on a hook, on yeah, a, essentially at a door, and he sneaks up behind someone and strangles them. So there's not only death and there's some blood, but it's not over the top. Yeah. But it, what makes him tick? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I think my other movies that I would probably lean towards for. A would certainly be um, The Exorcist. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Super scary. She's all, you know, possessed. And then the poor poor priest and that whole shenanigans. Uh, and then my guilty pleasure, Human Centipede. No. Yeah. No, come Freaking on. Freaking Germans, man. That movie is awful. I know. I know. Okay, have you seen... I was going to wait for a Halloween episode. I'll admit it. This one. Have you seen Witch? I don't think so. That's a weird, psychotic movie. that No violence at all. Not at all. It's <laughs> Did like, anything be as bad as Human Senity? <laughs> they it, made no, three no, of them. No, there's nothing worse than, <laughs> there's really not anything worse than Human sanity but, So, which is like a completely different kind of twisted, though. It is completely, entirely psychological. It's set in 1500 Salem. It's essentially just a family living in that time period, their Puritan family living on a farm <laughs> and they become convinced that a witch is haunting their home and really like their homestead. Isn't that a ghost? Kind of, but... A witch ghost? They essentially believe that a witch more or less has embodied one of the people in the family. Oh. Yeah. Goodness. So there's virtually. So. Which is crazy. Watch it on Netflix. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. (laughs) Who's on first? (laughs) What? (laughs) Don't you get it? I don't know. Which is crazy? Which is crazy? I don't know. Which is crazy? Who? (laughs) Exactly. All right. Back to Kemper. The fun, the fun
0: conversation
1: we're having about Uh, our friend, our friend uh, Kemper.
0: Edmund. All right. uh, I think that's what we're going to call it for part one of Ed Kemper. Uh, Covering just through the murder of his grandparents. It was a lot longer than I expected it to be. There's so much about it. There's so much more about Ed. Yeah, I was not expecting the first half of Ed's murderous career to go on for this long but I think this is a good time to call it uh come back for part two where we really dive into when Ed Kemper becomes the co-ed killer and escalates to a level I was not prepared for absolutely a special shout out to John McGrew for our theme song and Juan Mazeleon for our artwork be sure to follow us on Twitter at Scarlet Podcast and shoot us an email at scarletmurderpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned, Scarlet fans, for the next show.